This is the uh, Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am your host, Steve Lowry, along with uh, my co-host, the scholarly Yvonne Godfrey. What do you think about that, Yvonne? I like it. I, yeah. I like that they're not always about my really good looks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I... Uh, Thought that that would be a, a particularly good one for today since uh, we're doing something a little different today. So, Yvonne, what are we doing differently today? <laughs> <laughs> Calling me out. I know that I know that we have an outline. We have a plan of things we're going to talk about today. And I didn't look at the outline of the things that we're going to talk about today because I just wanted to come into it fresh. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely the way to way to do it. But uh, so uh, I have uh, let my better half uh, listen to some of our podcasts and uh, my that's, wife Leilani. That's not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife Leilani uh, is. Uh, always uh, uh, my best focus group uh, always calls me out when I uh, am spewing BS or um, some, saying something that's not making sense and busy. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, she suggested that for people who aren't lawyers um, that we have a show uh, where we sort of just talk through uh, what a jury trial is and, and the process of a jury trial. And so um, I thought that it would be fun if we got um, you know, a few of the uh, best legal scholars around the nation to do this, but unfortunately we couldn't find any of them. No, just kidding. Uh, so today um, we are joined with, uh, with uh, my law partners, Jeff Harris and Jed Manton, and then Jeff's much, much better half, uh, Rebecca Franklin Harris. Uh, and so we're going to talk through sort of uh, what happens in a, uh, a lawsuit uh, all the way up, you know, up through uh, filing the suit, all the way going through um, a jury trial to verdict. So that's the plan. Is everybody ready to do that? We're ready. Let's do it. All right. Uh, do each of our uh, uh, guests want to say hello and introduce yourselves? Hello. Rebecca, so you're the, you're the only one who's not uh, technically with our law firm of uh, Harris-Lowry-Manton, so why don't you, uh, why don't you um, give a little plug for your law firm? Sure. Um, my law firm is Franklin Law. Um, I am married to Jeff. I'm Rebecca Franklin Harris, and I've said many times that I like to work with Jeff and not for Jeff, so I've got a separate firm. We work on cases together. Um, Wait, why don't I have the same option? Because I work for you every day of my life. <laughs> this, is, this is why it's set up that way. Um, so, um, yeah, we work on the same kind of cases and do similar work. We've tried cases together, we've tried cases separately, and I'm glad to be here. Thanks for including me. Yeah, and you're in practice with your dad, Jimmy Franklin? I am. I am. He practices in Statesboro, Georgia, and I'm in Savannah. And, um, yeah, it's a father-daughter team and somewhat of a husband-wife team, mm -hmm. um, so it's very incestuous around here. <laughs> <laughs> this is Georgia. Be careful. Uh, so. Um, and why don't you tell everybody your website if they want to look you up? Sure, it's, um, I think it's www.franklinlawllc.com. Do you have to say www.franklinlawllc.com? I'm so glad you said that. You don't, and Steve says it every time, and every time I'm like, i got to tell him not to say www.franklinlawllc.com. Actually, what I'm going to start saying is the World Wide Web. Yeah, he had... You type all that in. Yes, he hasn't gone to www.franklinlawllc.com, but... Um, we're, we're hoping to just get rid of the W's. Yeah. So FranklinLawLLC.com. We've been pounding that out on this 800-pound IBM PC. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right, so what we're going to do, and I do have an, an itinerary, and I think at least some of you have looked at it. Uh, uh, so just sort of the different things that we need to talk about um, about a trial. So the first thing, uh, and we can talk through this kind of quickly, uh, but enough so that we can explain what exactly happens. But um, Jed, uh, since you've been quiet this time, why don't you talk about how a lawsuit gets started with the filing of a complaint and an answer and what happens in that process? Sure. Thanks, Steve. Uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. I've heard a lot about it. And, uh, from, from who? <laughs> <laughs> Many times where I've tried to reach you to ask you questions and heard that you were podcasting. So, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, the, the basically the, the, the filing of a lawsuit um, starts with uh, you have to go down to the courthouse and file a complaint. And that's what starts the process. Now, there's 
a bunch of stuff that goes on before a lawsuit gets filed where you're investigating, analyzing claims, figuring out what your case is about. But since this is kind of focused on the trial aspect of things, I'll just fast forward to the point where the lawyers or the law firm, they've done the investigation, they have an idea about what the case's basic facts are, who's likely responsible, and then they have to uh, draft a formal pleading, take it down to the courthouse, pay a filing fee, to start the process. Um, from there, that, that basically lists out your allegations, what you think happened. And in some case, you already know when you file your lawsuit what happened. You know, if somebody ran a red light, you got a police report and a witness that you can talk to, and it's very easy. Most of the cases that, that have probably been discussed during this podcast are much more complicated um, and had a whole lot of facts and a whole lot of time went from filing of a lawsuit to, you know, the ultimate trial in the case. And that's kind of the next phase that happened. So you file your lawsuit, you have to send it to the people that you've sued. They get served by a sheriff and then they have to come back and tell the court, okay, we either agree or don't agree with what's, you know, contained in the lawsuit. Very rarely do they agree. They usually say, look, we're not responsible or have some other counter story. So you go into a phase of what they call discovery. And that's where the lawyers for each side, the person bringing the lawsuit and the person that's defending the lawsuit, have the opportunity to gather facts in a more formal way, take depositions, which are just legal statements taken from someone under oath, exchange documents, go talk to people under oath that are not necessarily involved with either party. They might be witnesses or they could have been you know, former employees, things like that. Talk to doctors. So that goes on for an extended period of time. We could probably talk about that for, for quite some time. But after, after all that happens, eventually it'll get to the point where the court says, okay, now's, now's your time. Now's your time to come in. You haven't been able to settle your case um, and present your facts to the jury. So that's kind of how you go from, you know, a piece of paper to uh, getting, you know, to the jury in, you know, less than two minutes. Yeah, and I should add that um, the filing, just so when we sometimes throw around legal terminology in this case, the filing that the defendant files when after a complaint has been filed is called an answer. And so when lawyers talk about the answer, uh, they're just talking about what the defendants responded to the complaint. I also, uh, I also feel like this is a good time for me to point out that as far as when you serve the complaint on defendants, um, it wasn't until I went to law school that I thought you got served was really just a dance battle um, frame <laughs> until law school. I actually didn't know what you got served meant until law school. So it's not the dance battle kind yeah, for a non lawyer. Yeah, I don't know what dance battle means. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like Footloose, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> exactly. I got it. Which, by the way, was awesome. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That brand new movie? Um, yeah. Right, and, and so and then Jed uh, talked uh, about discovery, and we talked through that pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, you know, as we know, um, discovery can take a very long time before you get ready for for trial. And Rebecca, you've uh, you've done a lot of discovery and been extremely helpful in that in a lot of our cases. You want to just kind of walk through that process a little bit? Sure, I'll be glad to uh, try to put everyone to sleep because this is by far the most boring part of the the case. Um, but it is the longest part. I heard somebody say recently that if you think of a, like a sheet cake that you get from the grocery store, um, the trial is the icing. It's what you see, it's what you think about, it's what you sort of decorate, but the discovery is the cake part. So you can't really have the, a cake without the cake part, um, but it's the boring part, um, but it's the, the biggest part and frankly, sometimes the most important part. So Jed mentioned a sort of a regular car wreck case. Um, even in something that's simple like that, the discovery can be pretty extensive. You know, if, you've, if you're a plaintiff and you say you've been injured, you can't just file the lawsuit and say, I've been injured. You have to show that the other person was at fault and you have to show um, that your injuries were caused by that. So, you know, the um, defendant has a right to discover information about your injuries and what you were doing at the time to make sure that you weren't at fault. Um, and so that consists of written discovery, which is people writing answers to questions, um, producing documents like medical records, and then taking depositions, which is essentially like a trial, but um, not in a courtroom. So you give testimony about what happened. So it's the takes the longest. Um, again, not the most exciting part of trial, but probably the most important part of any case. Yeah, we recently had uh, Russ Herman on, and he had a great quote uh, that I, uh, he said that, um, uh, 10 seconds of inspiration during trial doesn't make up for four years of preparation. 
Uh, and so, um, you know, and the point is, is that all that work that goes into it, uh, it makes for a great trial and, um, and discovery is where all of that preparation uh, happens. Um, and so discovery can take, uh, I mean, I think in the standard case, it's supposed to take six months. It almost always takes longer. And then uh, many times it can actually take years before you get to trial. Um, and then the next thing, so basically after you finish discovery, there's a time for motions uh, where the defendant can ask for things to be dismissed. Uh, Yvonne, do you want to talk about the motions just quickly and then the, and then the pre-trial uh, motions like motions in limine? When we say motions in limine, what are we talking about? Yeah, so you mean like motion for summary judgment? Right, exactly. Yeah, so um, after discovery is completed or potentially while discovery is still happening, um, defendants can file um, dispositive motions to try to get rid of, of the plaintiff's case or part of the plaintiff's case. So um, they can file a motion for summary judgment and say, you know, based on the undisputed facts that have been shown by the facts gathered in discovery, there is no uh, way under the existing law that the plaintiff can recover. So. Um, they will file motions like that. This is before you get to trial. This is before the pretrial conference or anything like that. And so you normally get, that's a time consuming process too, because um, at least in Georgia with any motion that's filed, you get 30 days to respond to it um, at a minimum if you don't get extensions or anything like that. Um, and then um, you, might, you might have a hearing on it for a motion for summary judgment. Uh, so that part can be pretty time consuming and then um as far and then after that so if you survive if you if you lose a motion for summary judgment on all your claims then the case is over uh, so sometimes i think that's come up where steve and i have been asking questions about getting past motions for summary judgment um you know if you lose a motion for summary judgment your case can be done and there's no trial that's it uh, if you survive the motion for summary judgment then you start getting into sort of the, the pre-trial motions that are leading up to trial. So you, that's when you will um, be thinking about your pre-trial conference. You'll have motions in limine uh, to bar certain types of evidence. Which, by the way, what does a motion in limine stand for? In the <laughs> Great question, trial? Jeff. In, in limine is, is what is It's not limine. Is that Latin for lemon, or what, is, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> Isn't it for like in, in, the, like in the middle, or? I thought it was to limit. Anyway, moving yes, on. We, what is it? Of course we know the answer, but we're going to move on anyways. I think it means like, like, means like well, Basically, it's just a, a way of getting a pre-trial evidentiary ruling on something that you anticipate will come up at trial, and the court can go ahead and rule on it before it comes up. And it comes from the Latin in limine, which means limine. Which is kind of an acidic taste. Leaves in it. And as always, I, or, I think Rebecca actually has the answer. Or simply preliminary, according to well, Wikipedia. Some, some, some people think that. <laughs> right. I mean, sure, if you want to simplify sure, it. Sure. <laughs> sure, if you want to be all Latinly, Latin-y correct. Um, so, but what when we we talk about motions in limine? I mean, what are you asking the court to do, or what what are the parties asking the court to do? So you're asking to prevent any evidence, like Jeff said, that you think might come up that should not be admissible to prevent that ever being brought up in front of the jury at all, any right. references to it. So um, an example would be like, we normally file one on references to plaintiff's lawyers seeking jackpot justice or right. something like that. Something that ahead of time you think a defense lawyer is gonna pull, and so you file a motion with the court to get a ruling ahead of time to prevent certain references or evidence from being admitted at trial because once it is, it's hard to unring that bell. Right. And it can help move the trial along so that, you know, once you're in front of the jury, uh, the trial will go hopefully a lot smoother that you're not constantly running up to the, uh, the judge or making objections. Hopefully things will move quicker and more efficiently. Right. Because this actually relates to something that Jeff and I were talking about um, just the other day about how do you want to talk about that, Jeff, about how it's kind of related? Remind me of what we were talking about. <laughs> the, how um, the boomerang thing or the scarcity principle. Um, why don't you tell people about it? Yeah, there's a famous study that basically says that um, if, you, if a jury is, if something comes into evidence at trial that shouldn't come into evidence and then the jury 
is given what's called a curative instruction by the judge. The judge tells the jury, you heard the following and you are to disregard that thing, whatever it is you heard, which happens frequently at trial. Um, the studies basically uh, show that it has the exact opposite effect. It's right. the scarcity principle. If the jury's told to disregard something, the thing that they're told to disregard actually becomes more important to them um, than it would have been had it just come in otherwise. Because it's sort of like don't 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 go in that closet. Whatever you do, don't open that door and look in there like your kids, you know, right, whatever. Right. And of course, they're going to open that door and look in that room because you've told them that. And otherwise, they probably wouldn't have cared. So, right. And it's also what we talk about uh, when we make objections at trial. Usually, what you're doing is just highlighting whatever you were just objecting to, and then the jury's like, "Well, I wonder why they didn't want want us to hear that." Yeah. <laughs> right. So your motions in limine have to be good, and. Uh, get a good order on them and then hopefully all the parties really stick to them because otherwise you can end up in that situation so so after all of that stuff you um are, are essentially ready for trial one thing i did want to talk about is and we talked about this on a couple of podcasts our uh focus groups or mock trials uh, Jeff, do you want to explain what a focus group or a mock trial is and why those are so important? Jed, I, we have to talk about the fact that Jed is picking his nose, right. <laughs> yeah. taking liberties because this is a podcast. It's a podcast. Right. He thinks he's not on camera, but he is. <laughs> Which also, this is being recorded. <laughs> Which also explains his general appearance, too, as well. Um, all right, so, so before a trial starts, most lawyers will, will take a, a shot at trying to see what a jury how a jury uh, would, would uh, receive the case. And the way you do that is with some, either a mock trial, which is a fake trial, uh, or a focus group. And you bring in people uh, who, who typically come from the same venue, the same place that you would try the case. You try to get a, a representative sample of people in terms of ages and socioeconomic backgrounds and all that sort of stuff that would be similar to what your jury would look like. Um, for example, if you're trying a case in South Georgia, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good to go get a bunch of people from San Francisco because they may view the world differently. And so you try to get people who are representative of what your jury's going to look like. And then you, you focus group your case. Um, you can do it a variety of different ways. You can focus group specific issues. You can say, well, you know, how do people feel in general about med mal or medical malpractice cases? Uh, or you can actually try a, an abbreviated version of the entire case to the focus group, and you're doing that so that you can determine um, what your case looks like and how the jury ultimately will uh, decide the case. Over the years, we've done a zillion focus groups, and I'm always shocked at how closely a case tries to what the focus group tells us it's going to look like when it tries. And what you're also hoping to do is if you're trying it, if you're going to try a case and you're, you're presenting arguments that aren't any good or you're making arguments that aren't very persuasive, you, your intent is to learn that before the trial starts because, as the, you know, the old joke goes, the most expensive focus group you can ever have is the actual jury. Um, so you're trying to make sure that your case is put together well, that it's persuasive, it's compelling, and the way that you learn that before trial is to do a focus group. The mock trial is... is essentially the same thing it's just a little bit more formal you actually have a a fake judge and fake witnesses and um, you present it with the kind of the formality of a trial with the constraints that a trial would impose and um, a focus group's a little bit more freewheeling yeah and and to add to that um, since the holidays are coming up I sort of think of a focus group at least the more informal ones to be sort of like uh, Thanksgiving dinner when everybody's sitting around and Jeff and I start to tell our family about um, a case and they tell us that it sucks yeah. and so you know <laughs> and that always happens pretty much every Thanksgiving and that we're gonna lose and that's really what Which a focus is why I'm looking for another family Thanksgiving at Applebee's um, so anyway that that's okay when the focus group come back and comes back and tells you that you know you have problems in your case um, that's a good thing and it's always been helpful for us to to hear the negative comments not just the positive yeah in, in fact and, and as I said earlier uh, Leilani is my first uh, focus group I, I run all my cases by her and I've had her yeah I've had cases that I thought had real problems in it and she listened to it and she goes I think you're going to do great in this case and then I've had other cases that I thought were pretty good and she like 
Sounds like you got some real problems in that case. <laughs> and, um, but it, yeah, I mean, and in fact, as you were saying, Rebecca, I mean, you want to hear the negative side of it. I mean, that's more important than just having a bunch of people saying, you know, great job, you know, you have nothing to worry about, just go in there and try the case. I mean, you want to hear your weaknesses. Um, and Jeff, I always uh, give uh, the example of the power of focus groups or mock trials when I think of our uh, Hamby versus Daimler Chrysler case. Do you want to talk about what happened to us in that focus group and how it changed the trial? Yeah, we had a case uh, years ago that involved a defect called a brake shift interlock device. And there, there's a device where you have to push down on the brake in order to shift a vehicle into gear. And what had happened in that case was a child was in the vehicle and was able to shift the vehicle into gear. It rolled down a hill and it ended up killing um, another child. And, you know, we thought it was a very strong case. And, and, and one of the issues is, you know, what, what the, the, the defense is always, well, you can never allow a child access to a vehicle. Uh, it would be a terrible parent that would allow that. The truth of the matter is it happens every day of your life. You know, you have your kid in the car, you get you pull up to the mailbox, you get out to check the mail, well the kid's in the car, or you or you put your kid in a car seat and then you run back into the house to get something that you forgot. I mean, on a daily basis that occurs. But at any rate, we thought we had a really strong case um, against the, the automaker for not having a device in the vehicle that would prevent it from being shifted without a, a, a the brake shift interlock device. And we focus grouped it. And the focus group basically said it was pretty clear we were going to lose and we were going to lose bad right. <laughs> <laughs> and i remember us all leaving the focus group going you know because this case had gone on for years we'd spent zillions of hours and, t and a lot of money on it and a lot of energy and effort well and not to mention that uh, we had just started our brand new we law had firm started, it was, a, it was our everything. very first case that was going to go to trial after the formation of our law firm and so we were gonna we were gonna come out with a huge fizzle that's what it looked like <laughs> it was, it was telling us and so you know we left the focus group we got this feedback from them and we completely retooled the case we we completely revamped just about everything we were planning on presenting to the jury in that case because we knew that if we didn't do what the focus group told us that we needed to do to win we were going to get our butt kicked and well, and we ultimately won and i'm convinced that we won because we we did what the focus group told us to do yeah yeah what absolutely didn't, what didn't they like they, what they didn't like was the fact that um that the parent had left the child in the vehicle by herself and in in reality that's not exactly what happened uh, the, the the mother's boyfriend was washing the uh, car and he had uh, Madison playing in the in the vehicle yeah. and he had it turned off or at least what he thought was off and um, and he had walked I think we figured out he walked 17 feet away from the vehicle to get something and then that's when the vehicle started rolling but what what ended up you know and so the jury re I mean the focus group really uh, did not like you know that argument that that you know you leave a child by herself in the vehicle and, and that that's not the parents fault and so the biggest change that we made was as you know we had our client loading that issue right exactly i mean we we, we talked about that you know in uh in voir dire and you know through openings through everything and then when our client took the stand you know, said do you take responsibility for what happened and she said yes i absolutely do and i'm hoping that you know chrysler or daimler chrysler will also take responsibility for what they did in this case and so what it what it allowed jeff to do in closing it, and we're going to talk about this when we get to closings, the fact that uh, the plaintiff gets to go first, the defendant goes, and then the, the plaintiff gets to do rebuttal or, or you know, have uh, sort of bookend the closings. Um, is at the very end of his closing, he said, um, you know, we've taken responsibility for our mistakes. Will Daimler Chrysler take even 1% one, 1 responsibility for their mistakes? And so then Daimler Chrysler gets up there and they don't take any responsibility. And so then when Jeff came back up in the rebuttal, he said, well, there you have your answer. They're not willing to even take 1% responsibility. And just really, when it comes down to this issue, and we've talked about it a lot in trials, of credibility. Who's got, who's got the most credibility at trial? Um, when you have one side that's willing to accept their mistakes and their faults and say, yes, we made a mistake, but it's not the only mistake. And then one side that's just absolutely unwilling to do that it really hurts that side's credibility. So that was that was that was the biggest change that I that that I thought we made in that trial. Yeah. 
So I guess we're ready to move on. Um, so, so let's talk about um, let's talk about the actual uh, start of the trial. So you know everything's been done. You walk into the courthouse ready to start. The first thing uh, that you're going to do, and Jed, I'm going to ask you to talk about this, is voir dire or jury selection. Um, so uh, you want to talk a little bit about what happens during the uh, the jury selection. And let's, part go of the and, let's go ahead and start with Vordire too, the Latin for that, since <laughs> right. Yvonne's handled in limine. Jed, what's the Vordire mean in Latin? To speak the truth. And, and actually in South Georgia, they pronounce it Vordire. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I thought it was French. <laughs> French, Latin, whatever. Yeah. Well, fr French is a Latin-based <laughs> language. And I thought it was like, <laughs> see and, and speak. Moving on. Rebecca? <laughs> I think Jed, Jed gets most of the points. And I just, just, since this is a podcast, I just don't want anybody who listens to this to immediately assume that Rebecca is the smartest of all of us. Because what she's doing is sitting here Googling the answer to these questions. Pretty much Wikipedia. Um, it's a legal phrase for a variety of procedures connected with jury trials. It means, it is Latin. And Ow. it means to say the truth. So there you go. Ouch. Good job, Jeds. <laughs> <laughs> I took French for six years. All right, we're gonna we're gonna let Jed anyway, since Jed. he's uh, one for one go ahead and explain this. Yeah. All right. So, so jury selection and probably the the biggest uh, misnomer that a lot of people that are not familiar with the courtroom process that maybe have gone through it um, before they get, you know they get the public gets the summons they get to come in and they're gonna you know go through this horrific day of being shuttled around the courthouse um, from courtroom to courtroom. And you may or may not ultimately get picked to be on a jury, which is most people's goal when they get their summons in the mail is, gosh, how do I get out of this? Um, but ultimately what happens is that for each case, a panel of potential jurors will be brought into the courtroom. And to start with, the judge will ask some basic questions to see if people have some relationship to the case or the parties or what our legislature has said are automatic disqualifications from serving on a jury. So these things can range from, okay, my brother's sitting in the panel, that wouldn't be fair to have my brother on the jury or someone who is related to one of the parties. It may very well be that you're a student. A lot of people don't realize that's an automatic right to be disqualified if sitting on a, uh, jury would take you away from uh, classroom time, you can actually get a deferment um, for that. So there's some basic, so there's some legal different things that can get you, you know, excluded from jury. Most people don't fit into that category of having a legal disqualification. So then the judge turns it over to each of the parties to ask a whole bunch of questions with the hopes of finding out who are good potential jurors. It's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not like any other test we have where the more things you get right, you're considered better. So it's not like if you answer more questions and you say more, thank you. I'm like, well, this is a really great juror for this case. We're gonna put them on um, to hear the case. Actually what happens is um, each side is gonna have the opportunity to remove a certain number of potential jurors and whoever is left creates the jury pool. So. A lot of times what happens is the people that don't say anything thinking, gosh, I can just slide, slide under the cracks without bringing any attention to myself. I might, you know, not get selected to be on this jury. Well, generally what happens is it's the people that are really opinionated um, that say some things that cause one side or the other to be hesitant that that person could be fair. And so they end up getting removed. Um, another thing that can happen is a person can say so many things that are, you know, obviously showing that they have kind of prejudged the case without hearing any evidence and the judge can just exercise their, his or her discretion and say, you know, look, this person's just not right for this case and remove a person for that. So at the end of the process, each side goes back and forth. The judge has removed certain people because they have a legal disqualification. The judge has removed certain people as potential jurors because they've said something that just makes it sound like they're leaning one way or the other. And then from who's left, each side gets a certain number of strikes that they call it to remove people from that last pool. And then who's ever left, that's your jury. Yeah, and there's uh, all kinds of theories. And, and, and as we talk to the different lawyers about the, the uh, 
cases they've uh, tried. I mean, one of the most important, if not the the most important part of trial is jury selection. Uh, but there's all kinds of theories on how you do this, what, uh, how you're looking to either find jurors that are going to be problematic and you need to remove them or to, uh, you know, have them removed for, uh, for cause. And um, I'm not sure I heard Jed say it. So, Rebecca, do you want to explain what the difference between a peremptory challenge is and a uh, challenge for cause? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why, you can't go that I've, fast enough? <laughs> I've never been good at explaining <laughs> right, right. the difference between a preemptory challenge and a challenge for cause. I mean, essentially, a challenge for cause is a challenge for, it's a, it's a, you move to exclude a juror because they are not, they have some sort of bias they bring in, um, and they essentially can't be fair. Um, jurors often won't say that they can't be fair, but they'll say things that, you know, would lead the court to believe, um, you know, that they should not be a proper jar, and that is a that is a um, it's discretionary. Um, and then I'll let Yvonne take what a peremptory challenge is. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's basically where each side gets a certain number, and then you can just you can strike somebody, and you don't have to say why. Um, what you should. I, this is too bad it's a podcast because you should see how relieved Jeff's face was that I knew what I <laughs> Well, yeah, and, exactly. and the, re it's, it's the, reason, the reason I didn't want to explain it is because it seems like a, a peremptory challenge is essentially just striking the jury. That's right. So that's what I call it. So a yeah. challenge for calls is just when you, you know, you've got, you've got your set number of strikes, um, but challenge for calls is so you don't have to use a strike on someone so, who should not otherwise um, be on the jury. Right. So. Well, the, the, what, what the law says is there's certain things that, as a matter of law, preclude someone from being on a jury. So if you're married to the defendant in a criminal trial, then if you end up on the veneer, which is the group of people you strike the jury from, there are certain types of strikes that are legal calls, which means the judge has to strike them no matter what. Uh, and in addition, there's sort of another category, which is, as a legal matter, if you say, I can't be fair, and I don't care what the evidence is, I couldn't listen to the evidence and I couldn't be fair and objective, that's another legal basis for making sure someone doesn't sit on a jury. If you get over those legal hurdles, then the second kind of group of strikes are the lawyer can just get rid of, in, in a civil case, basically six jurors for each side for, for any reason. Uh, if you just don't like the way they look at you, if you just have a bad feeling about them, you can strike those jurors. The only, the only restriction on that is a constitutional restriction that says you can't strike someone based on their race. And that comes from a, a, you know, a series of Supreme Court decisions. But short of, of race, a lawyer can get rid of, in this second phase, if there is no legal reason for striking them, you can just get rid of them for whatever reason. In fact, you know, you ask your client, is there anybody on this jury that gives you the heebie-jeebies, which right. is a legal term of art from yeah, Latin. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, and you, and you can strike them at that point. And yeah. We've talked about with, with um, a, a bunch of our, uh, the people that we've interviewed so far about jury selection and how many potential jurors were brought in. And that's partly because, like, um, for for Tab Turner's case, if you've listened to that episode where, you know, his was about issues of terrorism. So you're going to have a lot of people um, that have a lot of convictions or beliefs that they might, in front of the judge, say that they're not sure that they can disregard or they're not sure that they mm -hmm. can be fair. Um, issues that involve religion, things like that. So then you need more potential jurors. So that's why in Tab's case, they had over a thousand. Yeah. Well, and, and, and as we heard from Russ Herman, uh, if you guys can imagine this, sometimes, you know, a judge wants to keep you a couple of hours for picking the jury. His jury selection in his tobacco case took 18 months. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, well, and that's probably a good um, time to talk about how tiring jury selection can be. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine 18 months. I mean, typically the cases that we're involved in, jury selection takes up to a day. I'm not sure that we've ever had it go more than a day, but it we can be a, a long, long day. And um, Jeff will remember one trial. It was a it was a big case. We'd been working on it for three years. We'd been preparing for trial for months and months, and it was very stressful. And we were dating at the time, <laughs> and had not really spoken about anything but the trial in a few weeks, and um, not on very good terms because of the stress that it, you know that. It, 
was involved, um, mostly his fault. But anyway, <laughs> <Right>. so <laughs> I'm sure it's all his fault. <laughs> we, you know, we get into to Vordire and and he gets up there and starts talking to this um, panel, and all of a sudden he is just a rock star. I mean, the women on the the jury, they were the the panel where they they would blush when he would talk to them. The men were like wanting to go have a beer with them, and I was like, "Who is this guy? I haven't seen him yeah. forever." So sometimes I'll I'll ask him when he's in a bad mood. I'll say, "I'd really like to be married to or to to, to date Vordire Jeff rather than the actual <laughs> Jeff that I'm married to." But it's, my, it's too tiring. My, my, <laughs> my point is is that it can it's a it's a stressful process for the person asking the question. It's also stressful for those who are sitting there um, helping, you know, watch and, and helping take notes because it's, you know, people are answering questions quickly, the judge moves it along, and you typically only have 10 minutes um, to sit down and, and figure out what strikes you're going to use. So it's a stressful part of the And, and one of the hardest. Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of the hardest yeah. things to do at trial. Well, you talked about how you're, you've got to be doing so many things at one time, even if you're not the, the lawyer who's actually conducting the questioning. If you're you know, my role is typically to sit there and take notes about what, how the jury, um, how the potential jurors are responding to questions, but you're looking at them and trying to keep track of what they're saying, but you're also trying to keep track of the look on their face and the look on other jurors' faces and the people who aren't saying anything at all. It's a lot to pay attention to, so it, it definitely is such an exhausting day. The fact that you have to just show up the next day and go right into the trial is well, what's, yeah, and what's even harder, and uh, Jeff and I have both had to do this a couple of times, is when you go right into openings right after uh, uh, Vlad Iyer, and it's, uh, yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, I mean, day. with yeah. like, you know, maybe a 15-minute break, yeah. you know, so. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, one thing we didn't explain, is it, when if anybody who's ever sat through a jury selection, I mean, when we actually do these uh, peremptory challenges, uh, it's, it's when they pass the pe piece of paper back and forth between the parties, and you, you know, put your strike number one and you, you yeah. cross them out yeah, and then you it, pass it over. Right, because the potential drawers are sitting there, so if you ever wonder what they were doing, that's what they're doing. And um, I, right? Yeah, they're in the room by then. Yeah, oh, they're in there. And I, I'll never forget when uh, I was uh, sitting on the, uh, the jury panel one time and I was juror number seven and I was, so I was in the box, uh, the, the jury box answering questions and then the lawyer uh, turned his, his sheet towards me and I saw a big X through number seven. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess I'm not gonna be on this jury. <laughs> we, should, we should also take this chance to point out, I've never once been picked for jury duty or anything, um, but now Are you a citizen? even if I do, huh? Are you a citizen? <laughs> yeah. Partly because I'm not legally no. I don't know if it's because I move a lot I've never um, gotten picked for jury duty But when I do I will probably Chances are not very good for me ever to be serve on a jury Because I'm a lawyer And so I feel like we should make a quick pitch Especially since the people who are taking time to listen to this episode are, Might be non-lawyers That you're so lucky If you ever get picked for jury duty And it's such a yeah, I think we, we would all kill to have the opportunity yeah. to see yeah. it from the other side. Yeah, so don't um, don't make up reasons to get out of it. Well, it's such an important process of our system, um, and you know, it, you know, people have always said that um, you know our our jury system is not perfect, but it's the best that's out there, and um, there are mistakes made, but. Um, you know, having 12 people listen to the facts, you know, and decide that it affects the parties is such an important part of our process. And um, so uh, if we can encourage anybody to actually go sit on a jury and not try to get out of it, then uh, yeah. we've accomplished something. Just, just think about what, who you would want on your jury if you ever need a jury. Lecture, lecture over. <laughs> <There you> <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's move on. So after you've got your jury uh, and and they're uh, put into the box uh, here in Georgia, it's uh, twelve jurors and it's got to be a unanimous verdict. That means they all have to to agree. Uh, and then you usually get one to two alternates, so that if somebody gets sick or has a death in the family or something like that and has to leave, the alternate comes on. But then you're ready to go into uh, into openings. Um, so Jeff, you want to take a talk about openings? Sure. Te technically, the opening is supposed to be limited to what you anticipate as a lawyer that the evidence will show once it's presented to the jury. So you're supposed to get up and say that we anticipate that the following witness witnesses will testify and we anticipate that they'll say this and, you know, kind of lay out the evidence that the jury's going to see because it's a hell of a lot easier for the jury to absorb a bunch of evidence if they have sort of an overview of what they're going to see before they see it. Uh, and then you're, you're allowed to talk about what the defense will be uh, and you're allowed to you know, explain how the defense is going to present their case. That's 
legally what you're supposed to do. What really happens is everybody argues like hell until they get yelled at by the judge. Right, you, you argue as much as right. possible. Right, so, and that's a, it's an opening statement and a closing argument. Right? That's right. And the opening statement is supposed to be a statement. Which is why in trial over and over again, the you know one lawyer will stand up and say, judge, he's arguing. And then you know the, the person who is arguing will have this look on his face like, what, me arguing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then the judge will say, counsel, quit arguing. You know, And then that goes on and on. And then the other guy will get up and start arguing. And um, so it, it, it's uh, it, it's it's kind of lawyers walking the fine line between arguing their case, which they're not supposed to do in in opening statement, uh, and outlining their case, which is sometimes a fine distinction that uh, is is difficult to draw. But that's the purpose of opening statement. Yeah, and uh, one thing I didn't talk about with, that we should discuss is this concept of burden of proof. Um, Yvonne, you want to take burden of proof? <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, who has it and what is it? The plaintiff has the right. burden of proof by the preponderance of the evidence. In a, in a civil case, right? In a civil case, yeah. um, more likely than not. And so that's why plaintiff goes, gets to go first, right? Yeah, right. I, mean, I don't know if that's technically why, but no, the plaintiff always gets that to is go exactly first. why. Okay. Yeah. Whoever has the burden of proof yeah. gets to go first. Yeah, so it's, it's your burden. So if it's a tie, then the, then the plaintiff would technically lose if, if, if you couldn't show that it was more likely than not. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's just important. I think it's important to explain that when the when the plaintiffs walk in and they've brought this lawsuit, I mean, it's it's the burden is on them to prove why they should prevail in the case. And right. So. Right. Yeah. And 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 even and it's different than the criminal burden of proof. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. And you start making sure the jury knows that even during jury selection and making sure they understand what everybody's burdens are. But I think sometimes that's hard for our clients because. Um, you know, bringing case litigation can be stressful. You know, being deposed can be stressful. But it's ultimately, it's your decision to file the case and it's your burden to prove your case. So. And it's why sometimes, I mean, the defendant, in theory, doesn't have to put on any evidence at all because they don't have the burden. So they could just literally challenge the plaintiff's case and not say anything when it comes to their time to put up their case and, and they could win. Um, all right. Well, so then, so after openings are done, both sides give their sort of overview of the case and why they think they should win. Then we move on. The plaintiff will start uh, what's called the plaintiff's case in chief, and um, and that is essentially all of the evidence that the plaintiffs are going to uh, put forward. Uh, Rebecca, you want to talk about some of the evidence you know that's put on in the plaintiff's case in chief, like you know expert witnesses, fact witnesses, that kind of stuff? Sure. Well, it depends on the case, obviously. Right. But um, typically, the plaintiff will start with some witnesses, and you and you start by doing a direct examination of a witness. And so the plaintiff calls, let's just say, a, a car wreck case, um, and you represent the person who's been injured. You may call a, a witness um, who, who saw the accident to say that they believe the light was red, um, which is a fact that you would need to prove in the case and so you would do a direct examination of them and a direct is um, I kind of think of it as like a commentary on CNN or Fox News or whatever where the you know the person asks this witness or this uh, person questions and it seems like you know it's a conversation but generally the Anderson Cooper knows the answer to the question before they ask it and it seems kind of like a dance um, that's how you want direct examination to be um, they say the old saying is that you don't want to ask a question on direct examination you don't know the answer to um, so it's it's harder than it looks but typically the plaintiff will you know t take fact witnesses they'll do direct examinations um, if they're experts involved um, those tend to be a little bit longer, a little bit more in depth, um, but it's the same concept. You you put up your evidence by asking witnesses questions, and then um, the defendants get to cross-examine those witnesses, which um, you might want to talk about. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, I absolutely want to talk about cross-examination. Um, you know, and, and I want everybody to sort of chime in, but um, you know. For our part of the case, for the plaintiff's part of the case, I mean, we cross-examine in the defendant's case. Um, and so when the defendants put up their, uh, their evidence, um, then, then we'll do cross-examination. There is one exception to that, and Jeff, maybe if you can talk about that, this, is that um, in a lot of cases, in order, since, since the plaintiffs have the burden of proof, um, they'll want to put up either the defendant or 
a corporate representative of a defendant, so of a, of a corporation, and and you know present that witness in their case in chief. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. The, so as, as Rebecca was explaining, if you're talking to a fact witness, you ask that witness um, questions, and you're not supposed to lead the witness, which means you're not su supposed to suggest the answer to the question in the question itself. But in, in that you, And you typically have to do that in your case. So you're calling people, you're saying, what happened, when did it happen, where did it happen, et cetera. But in your case, in the plaintiff's case, you can also call the defendant for purposes of cross-examination. So if the defendant is a person, in the car wreck example, you know, the guy who's hit by the, by the driver on, who's the defendant in the case, you can call the defendant on cross and you can ask the defendant leading questions. Isn't it true that on the day that this accident happened, you were drunk or that you uh, didn't wear your glasses that day or whatever? And, and, and the defendant at that point in time can be crossed and can't tell his side of the story. And the reason it's set up that way is precisely because of what we've been talking about. The burden of proof is on the plaintiff. So you can call the witness up and lay the elements of your case out through cross-examination. If you're dealing with a corporation, you can do the same thing, but you know, since a corporation is not a person, you have to call a witness who's a corporate representative. So you can say, you can call the Ford Motor Company as a good example yeah. uh, for purposes of cross-examination, <clears throat> and you can say, isn't it true that Ford has known for you know a hundred years that if you put the gas tank behind the rear axle and next to the bumper, that if someone hits the car from the rear, the car's gonna blow up like a mushroom cloud. You know, your question would be a little tighter than that, but you get the point. <laughs> um, and you know, and, 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 the per and what you try to do in that scenario is it doesn't matter what the witness says, because if he disagrees with you, you have a document that you can, um, you can what's called impeach the witness, you can prove that what he just said isn't true, or the answer, whatever it says, um, whatever his answer is, you're going to win either way. D isn't it true that the Ford Motor Company values safety? Right. Okay. If or the witness says, no, we don't, <laughs> you know, chalk, chalk up a point for the plaintiff. Yeah, or yeah, if, the, right. if the witness says, yes, we do, then you get to your next point, which is, well, why the hell didn't you design this car in a way that was safe? So that's, that's kind of how you call... Uh, people on cross in your in your portion of the case, and I, and I think it's a, it's important for us to um, quickly stay, take a step back to say that if you've never seen a trial and you've maybe only seen them on TV, it's really important to know that when you put a witness up, it's all question answer. They don't get to just sit up there and talk about what they want to talk about, whether it's on direct examination or cross examination. It has to be. Um, a question-answer format. The, the testimony that they give has to be in response to a question. So just think that's important if you watch a lot of like how, right. how to get away with like like t TV TV questions always drive me crazy you know where the person will just stand up and start making a speech on yeah. you know right. law and order and, and, <laughs> or, and or every lawyer's going oh come on yeah or, or they're making their closing right, argument right. you know and, and not even paying attention right. to the witness anymore right. just talking to the right. jury right <laughs> and and related to that with surprise witnesses and things like that we kind of we didn't spend a lot of time on it but part of the motion in limine and and the pretrial conference and all that process is most each side for the most part knows what documents the other side has, what they're gonna use as exhibits, what witnesses they're gonna call, or at least potentially gonna call, so. Yeah, the, the TV where everybody turns around and stares at these doors and some guy walks in. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I did wanna say about the corporate representatives it's that sometimes can be hard for uh, people to understand is that while this might be you know John Doe sitting up there on the stand, it's not, you have to imagine, it's not John Doe answering for himself right. it's he's answering on behalf of the corporation so it's as, as if ford motor company is sitting there on the stand and ford motor company is talking to the jury yeah and, it, and it's a strategy that corporate defendants use all the time they'll they'll try to have what we call the know nothing corporate representative right. so, so the guy who's representing some huge corporation doesn't know anything and that actually is pretty helpful to us yeah. like really you're the guy that they pick the guy who doesn't know anything about how the product was made so but it's a tough spot for the corporation to be in because if they if they actually bring in a knowledgeable witness, uh, then you can prove a lot of points. But if they bring in somebody who's clueless, well, that, that proves a point as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
So um, another type, uh, you know, and, and during all of this time is when uh, we'll be presenting evidence. Uh, and, and so, like for instance, any documents that you want to get into evidence, and we don't need to go through the actual procedure of that, but that's the time when you'd be doing that. Um, one, of the, um, uh, one of the types of witnesses we haven't really discussed, and I'm going to call on Jed to see if he can discuss this, is expert witnesses. You, you want to tell everybody why you have expert witnesses and what they do? Sure. Um, so th there's a certain group of witnesses that saw something directly related to the case there. They could be like even a medical doctor. They treated your client. They have firsthand knowledge of something that's relevant to the case. Um, there's also a group of witnesses that the court recognizes that they may have specialized training or education or experiences that the average juror would not be accustomed to. So they're allowed to present on the expertise that they have. So think of in a, Jeff had mentioned, you know, a case against a product manufacturer or an automobile manufacturer. You would have expert witnesses that are engineers that would come in and explain engineering concepts to the jury. And they would, you know, not just do it in the abstract, but they would explain the engineering concepts that relate to the particular vehicle that was involved. So they may have reviewed you know, thousands of pages of underlying, you know, engineering drawings and CAD drawings and photographs related to the vehicle. They may have gone out and purchased a vehicle that it was the same make and model as the vehicle that your client was driving to tinker around with it, to, you know, figure out what, 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 how it functions and how it could have been designed better and things that could have been added or changed to prevent certain things. You know, the, the, the type of number of different types of expert witnesses is almost, you know, it's huge. I mean, you know, you, you have expert witnesses that might come in and, and in a medical malpractice case and explain, okay, this is what the doctor should have done. He, he or she did not do certain things, and that's why this patient was injured. You could have another expert for the other side, a medical doctor, come in and say, look, this doctor who's been accused of doing something wrong did everything correctly or he or she may have not done it exactly like I did it, but both ways are reasonable ways of doing this procedure. So expert witnesses are there to help a jury better understand um, certain technical issues um, that relate to the specific case. Now, another thing that needs to be pointed out, the expert witnesses are not um, brought in by the court or a third party to give an objective opinion. They are, they are hired by the parties. So, you know, during plaintiff's case, what we're talking about right now, they, these are witnesses that the plaintiff has gone out and hired to present certain facts. And then likewise, the defendants will have the opportunity to do the same thing. Um, there's a lot that goes into that, but you know, there's certainly if you have someone that you're just paying them money to say something, then they're going to get um, beat up very bad on cross-examination. And Steve mentioned earlier about, you know, the the true underlying, you know, success aspect of a trial generally is winning the, the battle of the credibility in front of the jury. So, you know, you, you got to pick your experts wisely and you want to make sure that they're going to come off as credible, even though they are being compensated for their time. Jed, you, you're doing a really good job with your questions, and I'm wondering if Steve told you ahead of time what <laughs> questions you were going to get. Right, and Elsie, you keep looking at a teleprompter. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I want that teleprompter. Well, I, I've not done any casework in the last two weeks preparing for my podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was worth it? You're doing a really good job. And meanwhile, I'm getting asked what in limine means in Latin. It's from the Latin in limine. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Um, it, it, one thing, just following up on Jed's point, is that expert witnesses, like he was saying, they, they are paid, and sometimes that can become a big point of the cross-examination of that expert witness, uh, that especially if they've worked for the same party a number of times and then been paid thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars from that party. Um, it, you know, is a is a a uh, fair question to ask them how much they've been paid and then whether or not that would affect some bias they may have. In some cases that we've had where we've actually had expert uh, witnesses who've been paid close to $100 million by one corporation. 
Right. I think we would all agree that in our next life, we're coming back as expert witnesses, <laughs> right, exactly. having, having paid them a lot of money on both sides. Yeah. Um, and, and clients often ask when a case settles or when it gets ready to go to trial, why the expenses are so high? Why, why is it that we've spent so much money on a case? Um, and it's almost always because the experts are so expensive. Yeah. And, and, you know, like Jed was saying, I mean, so when they, when they're doing their work to investigate what happened, they, they, they go and they, in a auto products case, they look at the vehicle, they, um, you know, go to the scene, they may purchase a vehicle, they may do a series of their own testing where they're running crash tests or something like that. And so all of that, uh, it takes a lot of work and uh, and is not cheap and uh, and is right. expensive. Right, and the thing is, I think you you um, you need it. You know, just like the jury needs it to understand a certain issue. You know, lawyers end up working on a case so long that they become sort of experts on the particular defect or the thing that's involved. But you really, I mean, the first products case I ever worked on was a was a tire case with Jeff and Rebecca, and a lot of the issues were about how you how you build a tire and and what goes into making a tire and what the ingredients are and you know even spending a lot of time on it uh, I think I started with the firm maybe four or five months before that trial I didn't understand everything about it and a jury is definitely not going to understand everything about it so you need those experts um, to help explain those issues to a, to a jury number one because the lawyer really can't um, and number two because it's something that's beyond the kin of the average of a lay person so you need you know they're expensive but they're necessary Rebecca, go ahead and tell us what the halobutyl content of that tire was. <laughs> and what protective. the hell is halobutyl? <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, um, one other thing before we rest the plaintiff's case I wanted to talk about uh, and, and is the importance of demonstrative evidence and what do we mean when we talk about demonstrative evidence. And, and I can see I'm making eye contact with Yvonne and she's shaking her head, so I'm going to ask Yvonne <laughs> no, to talk about that. No, <laughs> no, no right. I was actually thinking that we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time, you mentioned it, but it's just because it's kind of boring, but you know, you have the kind of evidence like the documents and stuff that you're tendering for admission through, mm -hmm. um, through regular witnesses. If yeah. it's a police officer who comes in to talk about a car accident, then you get in the police report through that witness. And these are things that are admitted as exhibits and will go back with the jury for their deliberations. Um, yeah, and, w and one thing we should say is that, you know, our, our you know, we, our paralegals don't get uh, near enough credit for all the work that they do in these cases. But I mean, the reason why when we take a witness, say like a police officer, and we've got a set of photographs, you know, or the reporter is something we get in. I mean, they help us and, and we'll make sure that we have a checklist says, you know, are these your photographs you took at the scene? And that's basically the way that you go, right. go about getting that into evidence. Yeah, yeah and so, in some trial, if it's a big trial, you may have, we've had cases that go to trial where we had 5,000 exhibits. You're not gonna tender that many, but you may have that many. But, you know, I, I can't find my checkbook. I mean, I can't find my car keys. In I've the got morning. it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but you know, imagine imagine the chaos if I was trying to keep up with five thousand exhibits. So Steve's right. We have great paralegals who who keep all that stuff organized and and uh, help us find the exhibits and get them tendered and get them ultimately to the jury who looks at them. Don't you think you need to give a shout out to Bob? <laughs> well, and that's that's where I was I, I was going to give a shout out to Bob, and that's why I wanted to talk about demonstratives. And I think Yvonne did a nice deflection yeah, of demonstratives. Totally there. I think Rebecca should talk about demonstratives, <laughs> right. or, or just Bob. Yeah. <laughs> no, we um, you know I think that over the past probably twenty years since shows like CSI and Law and Order have become so popular, juries expect the lawyers to have a dog and pony show and they expect the lawyers to have videos and you know really really good graphics and they expect for you know um, documents that may be otherwise boring to be put up on a screen and and call outs and, and all this stuff that you couldn't do before um, the technology allowed it so we typically have a uh, trial tech person who comes to trial with us who actually starts preparing before trial um, weeks before trial with us to make sure that the the trial is, is seamless and that you know when Jeff says put up the x-ray from September 2014 Bob knows what that is and he can put it up and he can make it look um, sexy um, so to speak <laughs> and so um, you know if you can afford a trial tech guy if it's if the case can justify the expense we think it's um, always a good idea I've never gone wrong 
doing that. Yeah, and we're saying Bob, so we should probably say his name is Bob Poston, and he works for Legal Technology Services. That's who we we use, and he, he and his company have been uh, fantastic during trial. Um, so. Um, Again, demonstratives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody can answer his question. You use things like medical illustrations, so there's it's not an actual <laughs> medical record from somebody's treatment, but it's an illustration um, that can that illustrates what the injury was or what kind of disease or illness somebody had. You can have um, what we call exemplars, but you know a, a sample tire that's that's like the actual defective tire that you had in the case, or um, you guys want to talk about some of the products ones? Like a well, let some me of take the a bills, shot on this right. demonstrative thing. Okay. All right, so, so there's actual evidence and then there's demonstrative evidence. And so in a murder case, someone gets shot, there's the murder weapon, the gun that shoots them. That is, is that's a, that gun goes back with a jury, they can look at it and hopefully not shoot themselves in the toe or anything like that. But then there is evidence that, that, that isn't actual evidence that demonstrates some point. Now, from an evidentiary standpoint, the jury can weigh both those things equally, which a lot of people don't recognize. I mean, demonstrative evidence is evidence that can, can prove your point. But like if, you're, if somebody has a bullet hole in them and then there is a, there's a medical illustration that shows what the bullet looks like inside the body, well, you can't, you know, if the, you can't, bring the corpse into the room and you know send it back with a jury you've got to have something that demonstrates how the bullet hole went in and what happened inside the body so you have you have groups of evidence there's stuff stuff that actually is evidence and stuff that demonstrates some evidentiary point so illustrations uh, animations like a lot of people have seen animations where there's an accident and somebody because the accident happened 20 years or you know years ago um, you got to have somebody who comes in and does an animation to show you what it looked like. That, that's demonstrative evidence. Is that what you were looking yeah, for? Yeah, that's exactly. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, and, and You're I, welcome, Steve. Hey, a, a good, it's a, to be here for you. A good example of demonstrative evidence was uh, from the case that we talked to you, Jeff, and Andy Scherfius about when we were talking about other incident evidence uh, where in an auto products case, if you've got an incident, in that case it was a seat back that had uh, um, fallen down and or in a crash and and broken the spine of a little girl um, that you can talk about other cars that were made by the same manufacturer where that seat has come loose and, and fallen down and in for instance in that case one of the demonstrative exhibits that Jeff and Andy had in that trial was essentially a chart that showed uh, I don't remember what number you had, but it was a number of other incidents that Ford knew about uh, where this same thing had happened in the same vehicle, um, the same type of vehicle. Um, so that's another use of demonstrative evidence. And we, we like to try and get creative about it. And most uh, trial lawyers uh, you know, who we have on this show and that we've watched um, put a lot of time and effort into, into demonstratives that simplify the case and explain it well uh, to the jury. So I'm going to rest the plaintiff's case. I mean, uh, is there anything else we need to talk about in the plaintiff's side? Um, so we, that is what we say in trial. We say the plaintiff rests. And well, well, one, one, one thing that I think juries get confused about is in a, in a case where someone's injured, you might bring in a bunch of fa fact witnesses, relatives, people who know the plaintiff to talk about how this injury yes. has affected the plaintiff. So if, let's say you, you're in a horrible accident you can't walk. Well, you can bring in a medical doctor to talk about the broken bones, but the fact that it's dramatically changed the plaintiff's life and maybe affected their marriage and affected their family relationships, a huge part of the plaintiff's case in, that involves a, a personal injury or you know some kind of wrongful death type case is gonna be dedicated to fact witnesses that talk about the injury. Juries are confused about that, and a lot of times it's the plaintiff's lawyer's fault for not explaining an opening statement why they're going to see that. But I've, I've had them tell me over the years, like, well, we just didn't understand why you're bringing in all these people to talk about, you know, what, what happened to them. And so you, that's going back to this opening statement, that's the reason why you outline what the evidence is going to be so you can kind of tell them how it all fits together so they'll have some, you know, way of understanding why you're bringing that witness in. Right, and what I guess we should say, and I didn't really explain this, is that when we talk about that the plaintiff has the burden of proof in an injury case, uh, basically you need to prove uh, that 
um, something happened to you and that somebody was at fault for that and the defendant was at fault for that and then once you prove that they were at fault and they caused your injury then you need to prove what those injuries are and what how what effect that's had on you or your family uh, and we refer to that as damages um, and and so uh, what Jeff is talking about is would be in the uh, realm of uh, damages type evidence uh, where we're at the end of the case going to ask the jury to award some amount of money to compensate uh, the uh, plaintiff for the injuries and so that's why you have those types of witnesses explain um, the you know how just how much of an effect this has had on the on the plaintiff good point Jeff thank you um, so, so at the end of that, essentially at the end of the plaintiff's case, the plaintiff rests and, and, and by that point the plaintiff should have put up uh, enough evidence or all of their evidence uh, to prove every point of their case. Uh, that you know something happened, that, that somebody was responsible for it, the defendant was, and that, that they were injured and it was caused by the defendant and that they're entitled to damages. And that's when you would rest your case and they talk about that. There's a legal term called the prima facie case of if the plaintiff had put up enough to prove their case. Don't, don't even which, say which, that. Which means what? I don't, <laughs> I, don't I, I, I don't actually know. It's a prima for, for first, prima and fascia for first fascia. First, first fascia, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, Rebecca, I, I see Rebecca is quickly. Based on what I can remember from law school, it's prima facie means based on the first impression accepted as correct until proven otherwise. Right, there you go. As I remember it. <laughs> yeah. as I, as I remember. So, and, and at that point, it's time for the defendant to uh, to start their case uh, or their case in chief. And can I stop you right there. Sure. Clearly, sure. this is going to be a two-part podcast. It, it might halfway be halfway there. Uh, yeah. Well, except that I think we're going to go a lot faster through well, this. One, one thing that I think people don't understand is because you hear people talk about runaway verdicts and juries being out of control and all that other stuff is how many procedural stops there are along the way before a verdict is rendered. And so after the plaintiff rests their case, the defense at that time moves um, for a directed verdict. And what they can say is the plaintiff hasn't met their burden of proof and the judge gets to stop it right there. And that happens all the way through. So when you file the complaint, they can file a motion to dismiss. Yvonne talked about a summary judgment motion, which is after the close of discovery. Well, now the trial starts. In the middle of the trial, there's, a set, there's another sort of procedural impediment to the plaintiff's case proceeding, and it's a directed verdict. And the defendants can say, before they put up any evidence at all, they can say, judge, the plaintiff hasn't met their burden of proof. Throw this thing out. So that's what happens after the uh, plaintiff closes their case. And the, and the jury's not there for that. Um, you know, a lot of right. those, so they don't know that that's happening. You know, they're yeah, all- The judge will say, we, we've got some matters we want to take up outside the presence yeah. of the jury, and that's what's going on when the judge does that. Yeah.